Kim, that was beautiful. We've got some phrases from the song she picked, which couldn't have been better for today. I'd like you to repeat after me. King of heaven, come down. King of heaven, come now. I just love this stuff here. It uh, says in another song she sang here, he's coming in the clouds, kings and kingdoms will bow down. So open up the gates, make way before the King of Kings. And we're doing our Advent sermon series. And Advent is actually not so much about looking forward to the birth of Christ, because guess what? It's already happened. The traditional thing during Advent is to look forward to the Lord returning. And we believe that we have a soon-coming king that's coming to rule and coming to have his way with his creation and with the world. And so what's next for me? That's the Advent Sermon Series. What's next? We have to look at what's next for God's creation. What does the Bible say about the return of Christ? And what does it not say about the return of Christ? I love that King of Heaven come down. The basic rule of looking at the things to come in the Bible is that it's all downward. Look at the Lord's Prayer. Most all of you have heard the Lord's Prayer. Perhaps most of you have it memorized. Let your kingdom come. We don't go to the kingdom. The kingdom comes to us. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. That's the very core, the very heart of Jesus' teaching in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. And so it's all downward, like the rain. It comes down to us. So, Advent, we're lighting candles, one One a week. This is the third Sunday in Advent, a time to look forward to the future. And as we look back on our first two weeks, the first one, Pastor Tamara talked about how having faith does not mean being in denial about what's going on. Because there's hard stuff here. I see Dave and Kathy are back with us after recovering from COVID, and that's a nasty thing to recover from. Chris Breeze is here, and she just, uh, her husband, Tom, just lost his mom this week, Gloria. And that stuff is real. That stuff is real. And having faith doesn't mean to be in denial about those things. Having faith is to take those things seriously and say, nevertheless. Things are hard. Nevertheless, we pray for the Lord's kingdom to come in our lives, in our church, and in our world. Week two was the silver lining. The first week was don't don't see everything as perfect if you're a person of faith. And the second week was don't see everything as bad because there's a lot of good things happening in the world. And we looked at some surprising statistics about how so many things in the world are so much better than when you and I were first born. So today we're going to look at the Bible and what the Bible says about the things to come. Does the Bible tell us what is going to happen? Is there a code in the Bible, some kind of secret code? If you grew up like I did in my house, we had Easter eggs and we went hunting for them. Are there Easter eggs in the Bible that we can find that will somehow point the way if we put this puzzle together and will tell us what is going to happen? Well, the Bible says a lot about what's going to happen. The problem is we continue to add to it. And over time, you just have to kind of scrape that stuff off and ask yourself this question. What does the Bible really say about these things and what have we added to it. I'm going to start with Revelation 1, verse 3, and uh, you can look that up in your Bibles. This is the beginning of the book of Revelation, and it says here, God blesses the one 
the man, the one, the woman, anybody who reads the words of this prophecy, the book of Revelation, to the church. Now, prophecy, once again, doesn't necessarily mean future telling or foretelling. We think of prophecy very often in the English language of sort of telling the future. Well, prophecy in the Bible is speaking forth about the present with future implications. Tamara's preached several times on the gift of prophecy and how it's really speaking for God. I've got a little a little uh, uh, Bluetooth speaker, and you're like a little Bluetooth speaker, and God sends his message through his spirit to your spirit, and then you are the one who speaks it forth. And it's often about situations in the present time, which have future implications. And John, in the book of Revelation, was writing to seven churches, and you can read what he says to each of the seven churches, In any of them, does he ever say, a couple thousand years from now, this is how it's going to play out? He doesn't say that. He's talking about their current situation, which was persecution, and how they have to stand up under that persecution. All who listen to the message and obey what it says, for the time is near. Well, the time is very close for them, and what does he mean by the time? There's a very good chance he meant persecution is near, because they're facing that at the door. The Romans are coming after them, and if you know what the Romans did to believers, they basically turned them into cat food in the the Colosseum. It wasn't pretty. And so persecution was very serious. And they said, listen to these things and be faithful to the end, and if you're faithful to the end, you will be saved. Stick it out. Buck up under the problems. You can do this. And who thinks that we've had to do that in 2020? Holy smokes, I look out at this congregation, and we're developing now a core of people who are just nevertheless kind of people. And the people here who are showing up are the same people every week, and these are the people who are overcoming. Not that you're not overcoming if you're watching on TV, because you can't get here if you're in Indiana somewhere. That's not the point. I'm just saying that we have a remnant that is developing here throughout the world in the church, which is really cool stuff. I want to say a couple things about the things to come. The fancy word for this, and you can write this down, is eschatology. Eschatology, if you type that in in Google, it'll tell you all about what people believe on how things are going to end. What's the end of the story? How does this conclude? And I have to say that having lived in lots of places in the world, Orange County is the center of eschatological dysfunction. there's more crazy end-time stuff in Orange County than anywhere else I've ever lived, and I've lived in a lot of places. And a lot of it has to do with Calvary Chapel, and I love Calvary Chapel. I'm very respectful of Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith is one of the best Bible teachers ever. I love listening to his stuff. He has a flaw, like all of us teachers, and that flaw is date-setting. He said at one time he'd be very surprised if we passed 1981 and the Lord didn't return. And we passed 1981 and had to kind of keep moving. Folks, I have so much respect for Chuck Smith that when he had a paddle out, I was out there on my board, and some great stuff happened out there. The Lord really moved out there among us with hundreds of us on our surfboards for the paddle out for Chuck. And Chuck has affected my teaching like no one else, but once he started date setting, it got real dysfunctional. And a lot of people lost their faith when people, those dates came and went, And they think, oh boy. And the Bible is very clear about not doing date setting. 
Jesus even says, you know, hey, I don't know the date or the hour. Don't set dates. Don't pretend like you know more than Jesus. The problem with, with Chuck's teaching on this, and please hear me, there's almost no one I respect more than Chuck Smith. The problem is he bought into what's called dispensationalism, lock, stock, and barrel. And dispensationalism never existed before the mid-1800s. And a guy named Darby in England, in Ireland actually, came up with it. And he came up with a system of eschatology, which was based on thousand-year periods. And says, we're in this period, and there's this period, and each dispensation things change. And folks, the Bible doesn't tell us about dispensations. It's a system which is imposed on the Bible in order to interpret it. And all of this stuff fits together. I'm going to tell you a little bit about dispensationalism in a second. But nobody taught this before 1830. Nobody. And all of a sudden, Chuck Smith bought into it in a big way, and all kinds of date setting happened. And Luther did the same thing, Martin Luther, 500 years ago. One of the dirty secrets about Martin Luther, there's a few, Great guy, once again, like Chuck Smith. Lots of respect for Martin Luther. But Martin Luther got eschatology wrong. You can go to any Lutheran seminary and they don't teach eschatology. Why? Because he got the whole thing so wrong and were embarrassed about it because he thought he was living in the Great Tribulation, said so, and he thought the Antichrist was Leo, the Pope, and he'll show you his address. He did not expect to live more than a few more years. He thought the world was going dead. And so Luther was off on this, even though he was brilliant. Chuck Smith was off in the same way, even though he was brilliant. So here's some of the features of dispensationalism. And you can write these down take, if you want to take notes. Number one, pre-tribulation rapture, that the church will be taken out of the world before the tribulation. Number two, rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Number three, the Antichrist equals the beast. Number four, the battle of Armageddon. Number five, multiple returns of Christ, not one. Lots of returns. And the last one, number six, lots of judgments. Not just one, lots of judgments. The Bible... Well, let me take these apart one by one. The problem is they're all based on assumptions of a system created by Darby, which the Bible does not produce. And it creates all kinds of confusion. And people who teach dispensationalism teach it in such a way, it's so complicated. Did anybody here play shoots and ladders growing up? It was a board game. It looks like shoots and ladders. It goes here, it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down, it goes around and round and round and round. And people, when they teach dispensationalism, sound like experts because it's so complicated. And you think, I don't know as much as these people because, folks, I used to teach dispensationalism. I know it inside and out. I know it as well as my Volkswagen engine. I used to teach it until I realized the Bible doesn't teach it. And it's not just a little detail. It's a big deal. And I'm going to tell you why I think it's a big deal. So what does the Bible actually say? One of the things we do here at the well is we take on an unusually stubborn attempt to let the Bible speak for itself. Unusually stubborn attempt to look at what the Bible actually says. What it teaches and what it doesn't teach. So, the rapture. 
People say, well, the rapture happens right before the tribulation. Well, the tribulation happens in the book of Revelation, but there's no mention of anything even like a rapture in the book of Revelation. That's a big deal. It's not in there at all. There's no hint of a rapture in the book of Revelation. And if God wanted to make sure that we knew that the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation, wouldn't you think he would have put it in the book of Revelation? It's not there at all. There's zero mention of it in Revelation. And zero evidence that it were to happen, it happens before the great tribulation. Here's the rapture passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. And you can look that up yourself, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now here's Paul writing. It's very important to understand why he wrote this. Was he writing this to speculate about the end times? No, he was not. He was writing it to comfort people, to comfort people who believe that those who had died would not be present when the Lord returns. King of heaven come down, or is it king of heaven come snatch us? It's king of heaven come down. And people were concerned because they had believers now that Christianity was brand new. And people were dying, and people thought, oh my goodness, this person, my uncle died before the Lord returns. He won't see the Lord returning. He's not going to be present when the Lord returns in the clouds. So Paul says, don't, I don't want you to be like the people with no hope. So he writes, verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So if your uncle died, he's saying, the Lord is going to bring Uncle Bill, with him when he returns. So far, so good. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, we don't have priority over the people over Uncle Bill. Uncle Bill's not going to miss it. Don't grieve because you think Uncle Bill's going to miss it. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down. King of heaven, come down. And you'll notice in this passage, there's no mention of the Lord going back up. He comes to rule, not to snatch. He comes to take over the world and engage the world. With a loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will raise first will rise first. After that, we who are still alive, in other words, the dead come first, our left will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. We'll be with the Lord forever. Verse 18, encourage each other, comfort each other with these words. Now we go to be with the Lord in the air and he brings with him Uncle Bill. Does it say he takes us anywhere? No. What happened when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem. He came into the city of Jerusalem. The people came out to meet him, and they escorted him into the city to rule. Hail the king of David. In the Roman Empire, if any dignitary showed up to your village, your walled city, it was impolite not to go out and greet the person on the outside and escort him in. If Caesar showed up in your town, you went outside, all of you, with palm branches and the whole thing, 
and you escort the person into the village or into the city. The person comes to be with you, not to take you and bring you somewhere else. And there's nowhere in this passage where Jesus takes to us to bring us somewhere else. We go up into the air to meet the Lord, and he comes down with us to what? Rule. We pray for the Lord to come, not for us to go. This is a big distinction. Encourage each other with those words. Now, if you want to believe he takes us away at that point, you have to add that to Scripture because it's not part of the story. Coming to rule is a part of the whole Bible story. What about rebuilding the temple? I keep hearing that, oh my goodness, the Jews are going to rebuild the temple, and they're, they're already raising red heifers that they're going to offer on these, uh, on these altars. And it's going to happen. There's all these plans. You can go, go to YouTube and look it up, and there's someone who says, yeah, they're going to build it right here, and they're going to get rid of the Dome of the Rock, or they're going to move it to the side, or whatever. And this is so very common. But Hebrews says this. Hebrews says, and by that will, Hebrews 10, 10 through 14, Hebrews 10, 10 through 14, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. In other words, there won't be any more animal sacrifices. The Bible is very clear with that. Next verse, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest has offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, when Jesus offered himself one time, that does it forever. God has no interest in more animal sacrifices. I mean, what would God be doing up in heaven? Oh, they rebuilt the temple and they're offering sacrifices to me. There's already been a sacrifice of his son. And the Bible is very clear that we don't need any more sacrifices after that. Since that time, he waits for us, enemies, waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. No more animal sacrifices. So rebuild the temple for what? And folks, people predicted the destruction of the temple. Now here's the problem with perspective. If somebody in the Bible predicts the temple's going to be destroyed, they're writing it before it was destroyed in 70 AD. That is a fulfilled prophecy. It doesn't have to be rebuilt so it could be destroyed again. It happened. It was, it was predicted and it happened. It happened in 587. It happened in 70 AD. And these things were written before that. So we should say, yeah, they got that one right. But when you see something in the Bible like the temple is going to be destroyed and you read that in 2020, you think, well, then there has to be a temple to be destroyed. And you end up creating this whole scenario of shoots and ladders where this has to happen first. Next one, the beast equals the Antichrist. The word Antichrist does not appear in the book of Revelation. That's a big deal. It is absent entirely. And people say, well, the Antichrist is the beast. Well, that's fine if the Bible were to say that. There's a beast in Revelation. You know where the, the word Antichrist appears? The word Antichrist appears in 1 John. So John, who wrote Revelation, certainly knew what the Antichrist was, and he certainly could have used the word, but he never did. And here's what he says. 1 John 2.8, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard, that anti, the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. There is not one Antichrist. It says here, many Antichrists have come. 
It's not one satanic figure. This is how we'll know it's the last hour. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything, oops, that's another passage we're going to get to in a second. So going back to 1 John here, hang on a second, 1 John 2.18. The concept in 1 John, the Antichrist, is plural. Anyone can become an Antichrist. You can read that whole passage, and it talks about how when we go against the cause of Christ, we are Antichrists. There's been lots of Antichrists. I tend to think Brett Favre is the Antichrist because... The Packers, you know, the whole thing, they keep winning the Super Bowl, and, and, uh, and he came across to the Vikings just to mess them up. So, but still, I'm, in all seriousness, there have been lots of antichrists. Lots of them. Lots of people put themselves up. People say, was Hitler the antichrist? No, but he was one. Do you know what Zieg Heil means? Zieg is victory, Heil is salvation. When people said Zieg Heil, victory, salvation, he set himself up to be an antichrist. He says, and this Reich will last for a thousand years. That's a millennium. He was, he was an antichrist. And there may be more of them. Anyone who puts himself or herself in Christ's place is an antichrist. And the concept in 1 John, which is the only place antichrist is mentioned, is plural. It's not one beast, and nowhere does the Bible connect those dots. Armageddon. I've got a funny story to tell about Armageddon. Or you may say, what's funny about Armageddon? Well, I was traveling in a rental car in Israel, and I was out of contact with Wendy. She wondered where in the world I was, because I didn't plan to go to Israel. I ended up there because I was in London at a board meeting and got a, it's a long story, but I rented the car, and my phone was broken. So I figured, I've got to tell Wendy where I am. So I'm driving up the road out of this beautiful valley, and I stop at a truck stop, and there's there's an internet cafe. And I find a, a computer there, and I connect with Wendy, and I said, here, Wendy, I'm, I'm here in Israel, and let me go check to see, if I'm writing her an email, let me go check to see where I am. So I went outside, and on the sign, Har Megiddo Truck Stop. Armageddon truck stop. I mean, Armageddon is a mountain. It's it's a little hill, and this was right at the hill. I thought, how cool, I'm at the Armageddon truck stop. But anyways, there I was at the Armageddon truck stop, and what's really interesting with the battle of Armageddon is it doesn't happen. Revelation 16, 14 through 17, the only place Armageddon is mentioned. There are demonic spirits that perform signs. There are what that perform signs? Demonic spirits. And they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come as a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to be naked and shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together. The evil spirits gathered the kings together in the place in Hebrew that is called Armageddon. Next verse. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. There is no battle. They're gathered. We don't know what happens. And people talk, well, this is, this is, is, this is Russia. This is China. This is Iran. And I've heard so many eschatologists say, well, this has got Gog and Magog have to be Russia. Well, who says? They keep changing what country it is, depending on who our enemies happen to be. And it's, there is no battle of Armageddon here. They gather, and then 
the angels move on to some other stuff, as if this, this, this cataclysmic thing. Lots of complex returns and judgments. Let's look at that. In dispensationalism, Jesus returns lots of times, and there's lots of judgments. The more, let me say this in a real interesting way. Look at all the afterlife scenarios in the world, in every religion. The more legalistic the religion, the more complicated the afterlife. The more grace-oriented the faith system, the simpler the afterlife. Why? Because if you have a legalistic system like Hinduism, where everything you do is karma, and everything you do is on the final, and you can't, there's no grace or no thanksgiving, you just hope to come out in the black with more good points than bad points, and then you get what? Reincarnated. That's a really complicated worldview. Really complicated end times view, because everybody keeps getting reincarnated forever based on what? What they do. That's called legalism. Why anybody would want to believe in that, I don't know. Who here has got some things in your past you don't want to end up on the final? You better hope there's some grace. There's no grace in that system. Mormonism. Mormonism is a legalistic system. And what do they have for an end times view? Populating all kinds of planets and all kinds of complicated stuff. The Roman Catholic Church has come a long ways since medieval times. But in the medieval times, they had a very legalistic system. If you get credits and you get debits depending on good things and bad things you do. And depending on what you do, you get so many thousand years in purgatory. And you can pay, it's a very complicated end times view. The more legalistic your, your system, the more complicated the end times view. And people in legalistic churches tend to gravitate towards a complicated end times view because they figure somehow we have to give people who were good better prizes and better real estate in heaven than people who weren't. The thief on the cross should not get as much as nice a mansion as Mother Teresa is what they're thinking. In other words, they're being legalistic. In other words, I think the thief on the cross is going to be doing just as well as, as Mother Teresa. Why? Because the, the grace of the cross covers everyone the same. And Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. That, that's a grace-oriented system, not a legalistic system. And if we hold to a grace-oriented system, we have to trust in a grace-oriented end times. And not all kinds of shoots and ladders depending on the things you've done. The best book I've ever read on eschatology is N.T. Wright's History and Eschatology, right here. It's tough reading, but he's a fantastic eschatologist, and he's also obsessed with what the Bible actually says. And he says this about apocalyptic writing. Now, apocalyptic writing is like Daniel, parts of Daniel and Revelation, where it's highly symbolic. And he says this, and it's been so helpful. Apocalyptic writing denotes what's going on at that time. In other words, writing Revelation, John is using code language to talk about what's happening at that moment because to actually name the names would put people in danger. It's kind of like being a spy. You've got to have plausible deniability. And so he's using code language to talk about the persecution that's happening right now to keep the people safe 
but it also connotes, connotes timeless truths that apply today. Who thinks the Christian church might be persecuted in the years to come? Absolutely. Absolutely. Who thinks that we can learn from the book of Revelation how to stand up under it? I think we can. Because he's writing to seven churches in persecution, and we're heading into persecution. And we can get a lot from these books. And we can learn a lot from these things. So apocalyptic writing is about the present time of the writer, but it also has timeless truths that appeal to today. Keepers of the first commandment, if we put God first and not some political movement, we will be persecuted, especially with all the craziness that's going on right now. Does Jesus come to rule or does he come to get us in lifeboats? That's a big difference, folks. Is the Lord coming to rule and to transform creation or is he coming to get us out of here? And really, it's downward or upward. The problem with the idea that he comes to get us out of here is really, that's kind of like Buddhism. Buddhism believes that life is suffering and the whole point is to get off the wheel of suffering, to get out of here. Christianity is not an escape religion. Christianity is an investment religion. God is investing in his broken creation to make it whole. And he's working in our broken lives to make them whole. And his, he's not going to fail in putting this together. Is the main message of this book escape or victory? And if you're a believer in the Lord and him coming to rule, it's victory. It's victory in your life, victory in this world. And whatever your end times view is, the end of Isaiah, the end of Revelation, we end up here on a renewed earth. We don't go up to the pearly gates at the end of Revelation. The pearly gates come down to us. There really are pearly gates, and they come down. King of heaven, come down. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Is it escape or is it victory? Some practicalities. There will be a a winnowing out of the church as the end times approach. Casual Christians will fall away. Tamara talked about that in one of her Bible teachings. Casual Christians will fall away and serious Christians will get serious. Remnants. The remnant of faithful Christians will be blessed and the remnant will inherit everything. So persevere. Stick it out. Nevertheless, Beware of any teacher who knows more than Jesus. In other words, knows exactly when things are going to happen. Date setting is always wrong. Personally, there are some times I hope the Lord returns tonight. And other times I hope he takes his time because I really want to work on some things first. And the truth is the Lord is going to come when the Lord comes, when he is good and ready. And here's another thing. Do you believe that everything is, the future is all mapped out? Darby, who invented dispensationalism, was a hardcore Calvinist who believed in double secret predestination. There is only one possible future. And folks, I don't believe that. Reading the Bible, there is a tension between God's predestination, which is there, and our free will. And there's a lot of tension. I believe there's multiple outcomes possible. The Bible says, I've laid before you life and death, blessing and curse. Oh, that you would choose life. We have options. 
There are different scenarios. Folks, just because our puny little brains can only handle one end-time scenario, what if the Lord can handle 400 of them simultaneously, depending on what we decide? Who thinks he's got a big enough mind for that? A, a complex and, and uh, dynamic outcome. A dynamic outcome where it depends on what you do. What you do matters in this world. Choose a theology of victory over a theology of escape. Are we saved from something? Well, yeah, but we're saved more to something. Who thinks there are people who just get saved so they can go to heaven someday, and they just go back to everything else? I used to work with the Harvest Crusades, and I love the Harvest Crusades. But one of the big problems was we got all these documentations, and I was in charge of the follow-up team. And we were able to get 13% of first-time people getting saved to get connected to a church. And we worked that hard, full cord press. 13% over several years, and I finally quit because we were only getting 13% of these people connected to churches. They got saved, and they went back to their normal life. And that happens all the time. We're not saved from something. We're saved to something. And they weren't saved to the cause of Christ. They were saved from going to hell. Well, I want to be saved from that too. I'm sure you do too. And we do get saved from going to hell when we set up for the cause of Christ. But the cause of Christ is discipleship. Come and follow. These people didn't follow him. They said yes to him and went back to their normal lives. Eighty-some percent. Year after year. They responded to the invitation, and I'm glad they did, but they believe in escape, not in, not in victory. Prepare for hits. I used to play defensive end in high school and college, and uh, I would love to catch people unawares, especially quarterbacks. Because if you blitzed and the quarterback is usually paying attention to something else, because that's what quarterbacks have to do. They have to pay attention to the whole field. And they're looking to pass, and they're looking where the receivers are and who's, who's covered and who's, who's open, and they're not watching you. And you can just smack those guys because they're not ready for the hit. Uh, we defensive ends sometimes in high school would try to get the quarterback to cry by the end of the game because they didn't see you coming. They did not see you coming. Folks, I want you to see these hits coming because hits are coming. I, I don't know about you guys, but persecution is headed our way. Prepare for hits. And that's what the Bible says in the book of Revelation to each of the seven churches. Prepare for hits because those hits are coming. It is way harder to be a Christian right now than it was 15 years ago. We get shamed. We get marginalized. We can't say certain things in public. My wife might have been kicked off of Facebook yesterday for posting a pro-life post. She still can't get back on. That could have been the reason I think it probably was. These kind of things are happening. Prepare for hits. Brace yourself to take one in the head once in a while. Be ready for that and have an urgency for evangelism. If the time is drawing short, and we don't know how short, getting people signed up for the cause of Christ is urgent. Have a sense of urgency. I think the church has lost our sense of urgency for reaching the lost. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. This is uh, an old Aramaic word. King of heaven, come down. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We used, to, uh, we used to say that grace before. I was raised Lutheran, and we used to say, come Lord Jesus, be our guest. Let these gifts to us be blessed. And we, 
get together family gatherings. We still do that. And the idea of come, Lord Jesus, come and rule, come and fix what is wrong, come to stay. Christmas is all about Emmanuel, God with us, coming to be with us. We, we pray for him not to take us out of here, but to come here and rule with us. So I just want to pray with, with you folks and, uh, and pray for everyone here. Lord, I just I want to pray for everyone who's hearing this teaching, not necessarily to agree with what I'm saying, but to look in the Bible and ask the question, what does it really say? And what doesn't it say? For in this book, Lord, we have hope. We have hope in your victory. And Lord, I hope to see you return in power in my lifetime. If not, Lord, you're going to bring me along with Uncle Bill and all those other people. (laughs) And we're going to meet you in the clouds and we're going to escort you into your creation to rule. Forever. And make everything right. Lord, we pray for a sense of urgency to reach the lost. We pray, Lord, that we would not give up on your creation. We pray, Lord, that you would give us courage and hope. For you've promised us that there is a blessing for everyone who reads these prophecies. Make us hungry to see what your word says to give us hope in these challenging times. Lord, and if persecution is coming, help us to prepare for hits and expect them. And yet to say, nevertheless, our Lord is coming again and he will have his way. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus, our soon coming king. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, thank you, House. So good to hear that word. Um, I'm one that has heard a lot of different teachings as well. And um, what I love about House's teachings on this is that he just digs into the root of the words. And there's no guessing about it. It's digging into the root of the words. Um, Two of the words that um, really touched me was uh, the prepare part. And we discussed it this morning in our pre-service prayer time. And the thing that got to me is like, be like the virgins. They were dressed and ready. They had their lanterns um, filled with oil. They had the wicks trimmed. So when the bridegroom came, they were ready to meet him and to greet them with their lanterns lit and could take off where the others were not prepared. And I don't want anyone in our faith family to be the others that are not prepared. So we want to be prepared and we want to um, speak from victory. And I, anytime I send out prayer requests to our prayer team, the one thing that I always say, pray from victory because that's ours. Jesus died on the cross. He had victory over death, victory on the cross, and we get to pray from that victory. And so we need to, so many times we pray from defeat and hopelessness and faithlessness and just pure utter despair which is okay but we have to pray with that victory in mind 
And so I always say, pray from victory because Jesus did that on the cross for us. We don't have to worry about that. And so what, how can we prepare? How can we do this? Well, one is, um, letting us who, uh, see, I'm going to segue right into announcements this time. Um, is we want to get to know you. And the only way you can do that is it, I hopefully the slide changed. I'm trying to do it on my phone is by, for those people here filling out the connection cards and putting your prayer requests in. We want to pray for you guys. Um, us holding you up. If you're struggling at all, we want to hold you up in prayer. And so for those of you here, fill out those connection cards. For those of you online, um, email me, Tamara underscore Dorica at yahoo.com or DM me on Facebook or house, put it on our prayer wall on, on Facebook. I've been blowing up our Facebook um, prayer wall because my family in Montana lost their house to a house fire. And thank God mom saw it happening, was able to get the baby and one of the other kids out and everybody else was either at school or at work. And so there's seven of them, five kids under, I think the oldest is eight. So five kids under eight now are homeless and have nothing. Um, Judah, a family friend of mine, um, went for um, heart, open heart surgery, and he's like four months old. Um, he was born with a heart defect. Um, I needed that. I needed to know other people were praying so I could pray more boldly and more from victory. And so we want to pray for you, so get a hold of us. Um, also, I'm having slide change areas, so I don't even know if I can. There we go. Okay, thank you. So um, join us in praying for what we have for the month. So our prayers for December are um, that, especially the season that we sense God's um, presence, that we're seeking. Um, I don't have my glasses on, so now my writing's really small. That we put Jesus Christ to the center of all of our celebrations. Um, so many times that we start celebrating and we forget that Jesus needs to be the center of it. Um, so put Jesus in the center of your celebrations. Pray for your relationships to be renewed and strengthened. Um, it's hard because we can't, we're not supposed to be seeing people. We're not supposed to be doing our big family gatherings. When my family gets together for holidays, there's 28 of us from ni 90 years old on down to, what's our youngest? Our youngest is three. And everything in between. We were not able to do that at Thanksgiving because some people work and some people had people at work that had been tested positive for COVID. So it blew up our whole family thing. So pray for our relationships to strengthen and to be renewed even through um, separation. And then pray um, that hearts are open to hear God's message of love. This is the perfect time, especially during a pandemic, that people need to find a hope somewhere. And not in our politicians, mm, no, not in a vaccine. I'm glad they have it, but that we can't put all of our hope in those things. It's got to be in Jesus and his love. So pray for that. Pray for our president. Pray for our elected you know, our, um, for Biden and Harris as well. Pray for our government officials. Pray for our governors, our mayors. Pray for those people that are in charge. Um, if every Christian prayed from victory with affirmation and blessings on our political people, whether I like them or not, I, this is what I do, because there's a lot of them I don't like, don't you think that would make a difference? in our government and how they ran things? I think so. So do it. 
And then please pray for your pastors here. Pray for Kim and House and I, because we get attacked all the time and we need your prayers. We need to keep healthy. We need to um, uh, be safe and protected from spiritual attack, from people attack, from every attack. So please pray for us. That is another way to be prepared. Um, I gotta move it this way. Daily Bible reading. We put out a, a, so you don't even have to think about it. We put out bookmarks. You guys, there's new, there's bookmarks out there, I'm sure. So grab one if you don't have one. Read it. And this is what I do. Every time I read the Bible, I say, Lord, show me what you need me to see today. Show me your truth in this passage. And every time there is a snippet in there that I need to know, that I need to see, that I need to learn. And let me tell you, I've read the the Bible, you know, in chronological order. I've read it from front to back. I've done big studies on it. And there are, every single time, there are nuggets of truth that God shows me that I needed just for that day that I'd never seen before. So ask the Lord. That's where that pray from victory comes through. And then watch House's teaching. Don't just let House's teaching be the only Bible reading you do in a day. That's lazy. How said it, not me. How said it, not me. Lazy. Um, it is lazy. But what is happening is you're not letting God show you what he needs you to learn. So I'm kind of passionate about these things today. So be prepared, people. Um, teacher training. Oops, that's the wrong one. Tonight is going to be about Christmas, um, how to do Christmas Eve, right? Yes. How to celebrate Christmas, Christmas Eve during a pandemic, and how to do it well. Um, So join us today at 4 p.m., and uh, that's on, they do it Zoom, on Zoom. And so if you don't have that length, um, contact house at uh, hbhouse at gmail.com, and he will get that link to you. Um, We are planning on doing Christmas Eve. We've got a big, giant tent that hopefully we're going to be putting up today, if not today, soon. So, and we've got table heaters out there and we will promise that they will be working by Christmas Eve. Um, And we're going to be outside unless orders change and we can come inside. But we're planning Christmas Eve two times, 5 p.m. and 7 p.m. We're hoping to have childcare at 5 p.m. and then 7 p.m. will be uh, family style. So everybody will be in. Um, So that's December 24th, 5 and 7 p.m. We want you here. We want to be celebrating um, Jesus' birth together. So please join us. And people out front or outside, there are flyers. I think they're on the the welcome table. Uh, Maybe someone can hand them out. There's the prayer cards out there. Um, Grab them, you guys. Take them home. Pass them out. We want this place um, to be filled. And then, oh, we want to do something fun. It's been a rough year. So on December 20th, people, December 20th, we want you all to wear your ugly sweaters. And now if you're at home joining us, wear your ugly sweaters, take pictures, and then send them to us so we can post them on our Facebook pages and show everyone in their ugly sweaters. And for those of you that are here, we will have a little contest who's wearing the ugliest sweater, and um, you'll get a little prize. Maybe a little Starbucks. Um, Let your light shine is our, Kim's all happy. She's going to be all decked out. I know it. Um, We have t-shirts. I'm not wearing one, but 
we have t-shirts and it says the well at Surf City on it with our logo. They look really cool. And you can go on our website, find the link and then look at find light. Let your light shine. That's what it's under. Let your light shine and you will find our t-shirts. I think they're $20 and the money goes straight to our ministry here at the well. So um, we would love for you to come. House is going to stand right in front of me house and you can, they can see your shirt. Pull your. <laughs> My model. Thanks, House. Hi, yay, yay. Okay. Um, you guys, uh, thank you for being so generous throughout this crazy, crazy year. We're coming to the end of the year, and this is where you can um, really pray about giving a little bit more to balance out your end of year giving. Um, it's also a great tax write-off for you for the next year. And uh, we just need a man before the 31st. So they need to be um, into us before the 31st. And so um, you can do it so many different ways. You can send us in personal checks if you're outside, guys. Put it, your tithes and offerings in an envelope and just put it in the connection card or the connection box. Plus your connection cards and prayer requests in that box. Um, you can send us a check at 2721 Delaware Street in Huntington Beach, 92648. You can go to our website, divedeeptogether.com. You can do text giving. You can be a Patreon. Um, so many ways to give. You can um, go to tinyurl.com slash Malachi310giving um, to find all the different ways that you can give. And I think we have also PayPal as well. You can give on PayPal. Yes, we do, because that's how I give. Um, so there's PayPal as well. But, you know, the Lord says to in three, uh, Malachi 3.10 is that we are to be tithing 10%. And it's our first fruits. And so it's we should be giving when we first get paid. That's what, how I take it. Um, but it's really our first fruits. We're supposed to be giving joyfully. We're supposed to be giving um, out of love and out of respect for God, because you know what? We wouldn't have anything if it wasn't for him. He gives the best gifts and what we have is really his. He's just letting us have it for now. And so we're giving back to him to honor him. And um, that's what tithing to me is about. It's about honoring God and showing him that we love him, that we care for him, that we respect him, that we are in fear, that we have fear of the Lord, awe of his presence, and that we want to give our first fruits back to him. So please do your tithing. And I think that's it. So you guys have a fantastic week. God bless you all. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we will see you back here on next Sunday morning with your ugly sweaters on. And um, take care. Bye, guys.